Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I came to the conclusion that having him inside and constrained was better than outside and let loose, wrote Tony Blair of his decision not to sack his Chancellor Gordon Brown despite their long-running feud. This week, Rishi Sunak came to the opposite conclusion when pondering the future of Suella Braverman. On Monday morning, inside Downing Street, after a torrid few days of will he, won't he, Rishi Sunak took a risk and decided, after all, he would rid himself of his controversial Home Secretary. Suella's been sacked, I'm just hearing. For the second time, Suella Braverman has lost her job as Home Secretary. Nobody's nobody's ever done that before. It's actually pretty easy to get the sack in politics. And falling out of favour with the Prime Minister is just one of the ways to do it. You could also, ooh, let's say, break collective responsibility. Well, it's emerged that number 10 did not fully sign off the article before it was published. Find yourself at the centre of a scandal. She said that she had posted an official document uh, on her personal email. Upset a key stakeholder in your department. She's accused the police of double standards in the way they handle protests where they apply, she says, a softer approach towards left-wing groups. Or put colleagues in a position where they're asked day after day if they agree with the latest controversial thing you said. No, I wouldn't have used the language that the Home Secretary used. I wouldn't have used some of the language that she used. The words that she used are not words that I myself would have used. Impressively, Suella Braverman managed to fall foul of all of the above. In an opinion piece for The Times, Suella Braverman doubled down on her views ahead of a pro-Palestinian march planned for Armistice Day this weekend. Uh, Suella Braverman's team were asked by Number 10 to change some elements of that, but those changes weren't done. And I think there is now an open question which is being talked about more and more in Westminster about Suella Braverman's future and what her strategy is. If she was trying to goad the Prime Minister into sacking her, it was a masterclass. So Ella Braverman was sacked as Home Secretary, replaced by the now former Foreign Secretary James Cleverley. Her departure triggered a full-scale Cabinet reshuffle, with some surprises. David Cameron! So what is a Prime Minister weighing up when they're making a decision to sack a minister? And what's it like being on the receiving end when a leader delivers a fatal blow? I think the suspicion is that Suella will be preparing her leadership bid for when the Prime Minister is no longer in position. It's definitely not going to be comfortable having her on the outside. She was asking the Prime Minister to dismiss her. There's no such thing as 
being a minister forever. So everybody who's been in government has to adjust. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambre, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm asking what you have to do to get sacked from government, and what are the calculations for those leaders doing the firing? September 2008, the Labour Party conference in Manchester. At 2.30am, Damien McBride received a phone call. Something was happening at the Midland Bar. Journalists were trying to put two and two together, following rumours that a cabinet-level departure was imminent. And the journalists were starting to suspect a coup. McBride, then Prime Minister Gordon Brown's closest aide, turned to a colleague. Come on, he said. Let's go and kill this before it gets out of hand. So in comes Damien. This is my Politico colleague Rosa Prince, who just happened to be at the Midland Bar at 3.15am when McBride entered the room. This is to a a pretty big gaggle of journalists and then as these things happen, you know, one journalist spots that he's talking to another journalist and so more and more and more people join the crowd and he comes in and he says, right, 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 this is the story, this is what's happening, she's she's leaving, she's, she's going. The she was Ruth Kelly. And right there in the middle of Manchester's Midland Hotel Bar, beneath the high ceilings and brightly lit chandeliers, the education secretary lost her job. The rumours had started the previous day, when word got out that Kelly was wavering about resigning. The truth was, she decided to resign weeks before. She had already told Brown, but she had promised to wait until after conference was over to announce her decision. But then... Newsnight got hold of the story and McBride decided to act before, in his words, things got out of hand. Looking back, what must have happened was that Damien was incredibly protective of Gordon Brown and I think he had got a bit paranoid and felt like this Ruth Kelly departure would be spun as her walking out on on Brown and almost an attack on him. And I think he wanted to kind of turn that on its head and assert... Brown's authority and say, no, Gordon sacked her. I think that's what was happening. In the morning, there was a a massive backlash because she was very upset and hurt. I think she still had to go ahead and deliver her conference speech, which she then had to really hastily rewrite. Conference, I hope you'll forgive me for departing from my text for a moment. As you may have heard on the news this morning, this will be my last time addressing you as a member of the Cabinet. It was seen as kind of the nadir of of Mad Dog McBride and him really having too much control and authority over Cabinet ministers. You know, here's this guy, who was he, sacking a Cabinet minister in front of Her Majesty's lobby. McBride later claimed in his autobiography that during his 3am briefing, all he was trying to do was make clear that Kelly was going with Brown's blessing and that the idea that he had essentially sacked Kelly on the spot was, and I quote, obviously bollocks. Hmm. Either way, for the papers, it was a massive story. Or at least it should have been. 
have to admit, Aggie, that I was a little bit drunk. I just remember really clearly we had this one blackberry and we were trying to file the story and we were kind of passing it back and forth between us because none of us could really see straight. So we'd sort of tap out a couple of lines and then hand it over and then the next person would take over. So it was re- the byline in the next day's paper was by three of us, except that this is before the digital age, really. It did go on the web. But when we later got the numbers, I think two people had read this story and one was in Seattle and one was in Honolulu. I think that was about it. Fifteen years on, a story like that would get many thousands of times those page views. Because it's not just Westminster lobby journalists who are obsessed with people getting sacked. It's human drama, isn't it? You know, politics for me is most interesting when we're talking about people. So who's up, who's down? You know, that's writ large if if somebody's actually sacked, if somebody actually loses their job. The most dramatic ministerial sackings, like that of Ruth Kelly, live long in the memory. In 2017, International Development Secretary Priti Patel was summoned back from Africa after it emerged she had held a series of unauthorised meetings with Israeli officials while on holiday. Twelve secret meetings with Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Tens of thousands of people tracked her plane back to the UK in real time, gleefully awaiting the moment she would land back on British soil to face the music. When she landed, she was, of course... Duly dismissed. You're a straight talker. You were sacked, right? Well, I left government and, you know, I apologise for what happened and, you know, it, my actions caused difficulty for the government as the 24,000 people who were tracking me at the time also, you know, saw. I just think that the human drama of it is what appeals to journalists and, and to anyone else who's interested in politics. You can hear the excitement of journalists this week as the reshuffle began in Downing Street. But this is real life drama, which means real human reactions are at play. And getting sacked in any walk of life is hard to take. I'll be honest, for the first week or so, I thought, how am I going to fill my diary again? What do I want to do? This is Wendy Morton. Last year, she was fired by Rishi Sunak when he became Prime Minister. You know, when there's a change of Prime Minister and you're the Chief Whip, let's be really honest, I would expect nothing less. A new Prime Minister coming in would want their own Chief Whip. Doesn't make it any easier. So I was asked to go and see the Prime Minister, so I I met the Prime Minister face to face. Do you remember what he said? Um, I do, but I would... At the end of the day, I'm professional and I'm not going to say, but we, it was a conversation. Was, was he kind? We had a conversation. Um, I've known the Prime Minister for a number of years. Um, he was doing his job and uh, it's just the way it works. We had a conversation. It's just the way it works. Ouch. As you might just be able to detect there, Wendy Morton and Rishi Sunak have a history. Regular listeners of the podcast may remember that back in 2014, they both went for the same seat in North Yorkshire. Sunak won the battle, and now, almost a decade later, he was throwing her out of her job. I'm asking you to resign, he told her. No, you're not, she responded. You're firing me. After having been a minister and then chief for a number of years, 
I suddenly found, oh, I suppose I felt quite liberated actually, but the life without a red box, life without PQs and Westminster Hall debates, I suddenly found I had time again. If I'm on, genuinely honest, I've not really spent loads of time dwelling on it. Wendy Morton, of course, had been on the other side of a number of sackings during her brief time as Chief Whip. So the Prime Minister would make some phone calls, the Chief Whip would make a lot of those phone calls. Of course it's difficult, you know. Um, imagine if you're in their shoes, you know, and I've, you know, I've experienced it both ways now. Um, so my view is at the end of the day that everyone is a colleague um, and you do it the best that you can. It's not an enjoyable job. Um, who would want to have to make those, make those calls? You know what you need to say, but you have to measure that, make and make it a measured phone call and be able to speak um, in the right manner to the person on the end of the phone. Getting it right is not always as easy as it sounds. I got a text message saying, please call the number for the chief whip. This is Tory MP and former DCMS minister, Matt Warman. He's talking about being fired from the government by Wendy Morton when Liz Truss took over as prime minister. Rather cruelly, he thought he was about to be asked to stay in government. I was at that point quite pleased because uh, I, I was a Minister of State, the Chief Whip is technically a Minister of State. The tradition is that the Chief Whip doesn't do firings as much. Um, it tends to be the Prime Minister and I think that's, that's probably the best way of doing it. So I called the Chief Whip expecting a sort of relatively pleasant conversation, but you never know how these things are going to go. And the then Chief Whip Wendy Morton uh, told me that there were uh, there were some things that she liked more about her job than others, um, that this was one of the things that she liked less, and that she had looked on the board and she had decided that she had to let me go. That's not normal. It's not unprecedented. Um, Chief, Chief Whips have fired lots of people before. I think in terms of keeping the party together then making people feel that the government, whatever the government is, is, is grateful for whatever they've done is, is usually the norm. And I think there is a sort of slightly more traditional format which says the Prime Minister has asked me to call you. They're sorry that they haven't been able to call you themselves. They are very grateful for everything that you've done. And I'm really sorry, but... And I think that would have been perhaps a way that would have left people who were on the wrong end of that experience somewhat happier. And I think uh, some of that unhappiness rippled out through the subsequent weeks. Who knows? Maybe this is part of the reason why Wendy Morton and her boss, Liz Truss, lasted just seven whole weeks in their jobs. It's certainly true that sackings can be done in very different ways and that trying to limit the number of disgruntled backbenchers might not be the worst idea. Matt Warman has much fonder memories of the first time he got the chop in 2021, when Prime Minister Boris Johnson sacked him directly. The Prime Minister, in, in, his, in this sense, defence, he opened the call by saying, Matt, this is not the optimistic phone call that you were hoping for. Um, and I cannot fault him for, for, for that process. Boris was very charming and he went through a whole series of sort of quite predictable lines around, uh, you know what this business is like, I've sometimes got to move people on. Uh, he said, you're, you're young enough to come back, I'd like to bring you back if I possibly can, all, all of that stuff. But ultimately, this conversation is about you leaving, not about you coming back. And I, I, did, I did come away uh, from it thinking he'd had the decency to phone me himself. And uh, that is 
uh, a good character reference, I think. And I didn't come away thinking anything other than these are the rules of the game and you have to live with them. It seems quite impressive to me to come out of that phone call and feel almost good about it and not feel like you want to go back into the back benches and make massive trouble for the Prime Minister. Oh, I think, I mean, different people take different approaches, don't they? I I took the view that I would take him at his word and that, that, that there would be, in theory, an opportunity to come back. It turned out that, that there was. So, so I suppose, in a sense, uh, there is some proof there. But I think you're either someone who thinks uh, I'm going to put my own grumpiness ahead of the good of the party, which I think is not always, it's, it's not my style, um, and or you're someone who thinks, you know what, we're all ultimately on one team. And that team is represented by the government on one level, and we've all got to try and get behind it. Now, some people would say that that's weak. I think uh, this job shouldn't be about individual egos. Many accounts of being sacked by Boris Johnson are similar to this. Andrea Ledson wrote in her memoir of a near-identical conversation with him in 2020. You'll be back, he told her. Which, to be fair, was proved right this week. But if Boris Johnson was surprisingly good at sacking people, that doesn't mean he actively enjoyed it. I don't think any leader eagerly sacks people. But I don't think anybody would want to make a habit of it. Or does it with delight. Here's Neil Kinnock, friend of the podcast and former Labour leader. Although he never sacked with delight, there was one occasion of which he does seem rather proud. There are occasions when sacking people from the front bench is entirely justified and absolutely necessary. Uh, One occasion was when um, Saddam Hussein sent his forces in to invade Kuwait in August 1990. And I rapidly made clear that, uh, first of all, that was against every form of international law. And so I made it very clear that the Labour Party in Parliament would be voting for military action against Saddam Hussein uh, if that was necessary and supported by the UN. Kinnock knew there would be members of the front bench who might object to military action. He came up with a list of two names and then he came up with a plan. I did something a little bit underhand, I suppose. I took the precaution of drawing up a press notice in each case saying that I'd sacked them because they couldn't support the party position. I interviewed them naturally and uh, when separately and individually they made very clear that they were determined to resign, I said, no, you're not resigning, you're being sacked. He had organised a signal with his secretaries outside. If he knocked once on his office door, they would take the first press release to the press gallery. And if he knocked twice, they would take the second. I knew that as soon as they left the room, each of them, they would be going to the press gallery and reporting to the press how they had resigned on principle, which, of course, was their entitlement. And uh, when the time came... I kept on talking to the individuals concerned separately and banged the door. And up went the notice instantly. So by the time 10, 15 minutes later, 
each of them got to the press gallery, it was already on the wires. Outrageous. But Kinnock has no regrets. If you go on the front bench and you accept the position and you accept also the advantages that can go with it, then you have to accept the responsibility of being uh, collectively part of a team. They didn't, and so I sacked them. In Kinnock's view, disloyalty or a lack of collective responsibility is a cardinal sin. Here he is on Suella Braverman. She was so excessive in the very deliberate wording of the piece that she wrote in the Times that she was um, asking the Prime Minister to dismiss her. Reading that piece carefully, I think it's phrased in such a way uh, as to say effectively to uh, Rishi Sunak, come on, big boy, let's see what you're made of. It really is that elementary, uh, raw, crude. There is a very clear set of rules in the ministerial code But the basic rule is one of team loyalty and adhesion. And if for reason of principle or opportunism or whatever, you break those rules, that code, the conventions, then you must either do the straightforward thing and resign, or you must expect to be sacked. Kinnock's most recent successor as Labour leader Keir Starmer, faced a similar dilemma on Wednesday night and came to the same conclusion. The divisions that the fighting in Gaza have caused in the Labour Party burst into the open in Parliament this evening. Eight frontbenchers were either sacked or forced to quit after failing to back his position on a ceasefire in Gaza. Of course um, I want us to move forward as united as we can as a party. Coming up after the break, we take you inside the room when Downing Street is planning a raft of sackings. Whiteboard and all. Crucially, they use photographs as well now, so you can look at the reshuffle board and think, damn, that's a lot of white people. (laughs) And for all those government ministers listening, we'll talk you through the four main reasons you'll eventually get the boot. When I saw the chief whip and the deputy chief whip both wanted to speak to me on a conference call, I knew there would be a fair chance that I would be sacked. And then I texted Michael Gove and I went, oh, I've just been fired. He went, oh, me too. Stay with us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. 
Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. If you are a cabinet minister and you're going to be sacked, this is how it normally works. First, you'll get a phone call. You'll be invited to the Prime Minister's parliamentary office for a quiet chat. When the deed is done, you will no longer have a ministerial car and you won't be able to go back to your department. All the trappings of the office disappear in an instant. The idea is that you'll simply slink away into the night. Of course, it doesn't always work like this. It is a letter, I think, that signals intent. But by contrast, if you're about to be promoted in government, you will be instructed to walk down Downing Street for all the cameras to see. You corral them in different rooms so they don't bump into each other and say, oh, what have you been offered? This is Cleo Watson. She was once Deputy Chief of Staff to Boris Johnson in Downing Street. Now she writes erotic political fiction. Her first book, Whips, is out now. They have a meeting with the Prime Minister, they say thank you so much, they have their photograph taken, it goes on the website. Some of them are just like, who's this person, where they come from? They barely even have a Wikipedia entry. When in post, Watson was involved in thinking about how reshuffles, and therefore sackings, would play out. The reshuffle board normally lives in the Cabinet Office in like peacetime, when it's not being used. And it's a big whiteboard with a grid drawn onto it in permanent marker and then it's got along the top the kind of names of the different departments and then starting with Secretary of State at the top it then has the kind of different ministerial offices then there are people's names and photographs crucially they use photographs as well now so you can look at the reshuffle board and think Damn, that's a lot of white people. (laughs) That's a lot of white men. But do you ever feel sorry for those who don't get promotions or who are sacked? I have some sympathy with it because you think, you know, dream big, you may as well go for it too. And you think, what am I doing wrong? I'm just, I turn up to Parliament all the time. I'm doing a really good job. My constituents like me. I don't seem to make massive cock-ups the whole time. I actually have a background in law or medicine or you know engineering but you know I backed the wrong horse in the leadership contest or I wasn't kind of full-throated enough with my support or you know I found the whole thing a bit gross. But politics is a brutal business and as the old saying goes all political careers end in failure which often means getting sacked and if you Perhaps, like Suella Braverman, are trying to get the sack. I'm going to give you four different ways you could do it. Number one, perhaps the most common over recent years, given all the turbulence within the Tory party, be out of favour when a new leader takes office. I left Cabinet when there was a change of Prime Minister. Nicky Morgan was sacked as Education Secretary when Theresa May took over as Prime Minister in 2016. I didn't back Theresa May for being Prime Minister, and I had my reasons for, for, for doing that. And look, Theresa May clearly felt that I was not on her team and that, you know, she needed somebody to do, you know, something different in education. Um, and that wasn't going to be, be me. Um, so 
I wasn't surprised. I mean, I think the department knew that I was on the way out. And um, and when you're asked to go and see the Prime Minister in their office in the House of Commons, um, and I remember Oliver Letwin was there before me, so he was being fired. Um, George Osborne had already been fired. Um, and I was taken into Theresa May's office as, as the new Prime Minister. And what's the conversation actually like when you're in there? It's a difficult conversation. I was not surprised, but still in a state of a little bit of, I suppose, sort of shock in a way. And I had to do it for her because um, she, after talking about, you know, I'm I'm going to put a new cabinet together. Um, I need some, you know, space in that cabinet for new people. And she sort of paused and she sort of, I'm going to have to, um, 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 and I said, what, let me go? And she went, oh, yes, that's right. And so I said, look, totally understand, you know, thank you and good luck. Um, and it's over pretty quickly. I think it was probably five or six minutes, if that. And is it awkward? Yeah, it, it, it is awkward. And I, I remember going out the room and texting various people, you know, including my husband, obviously, straight away. And um, and then I texted Michael Gove and I went, oh, I've just been fired. And he went, oh, me too. So there was a sort of, um, you know, element of, right, let, let's all compare notes, basically, on, on how it was done. But there are cases where people just say, no, I don't want to be moved. I mean, do you, do you occasionally hear people just saying no? It's funny because I... <laughs> hadn't appreciated. I think it was Jeremy Hunt when she tried to move him from being health secretary, if I'm not mistaken, and he said no. I, I have to say I hadn't appreciated that no was an option. Um, to be honest with you, my view is if the Prime Minister asks you to do something, whether it's thank you and goodbye or please will you join my cabinet, the default answer really should be yes, because it's a matter of public service. Nikki Morgan was so sure that she was about to be sacked that she had preemptively said goodbye to the civil servants in her private office. But if you're sacked for a more dramatic reason, it can come out of nowhere. Famously, Kwasi Kwarteng was on his way back from Washington in the midst of Liz Truss's chaotic premiership when he saw a tweet from The Times' political editor revealing that he was about to get sacked as UK Chancellor. His plane had barely kissed British soil when the briefing about him began. The Chancellor had returned home to be fired. Unlike all the ex-ministers we've heard from so far, who all got the boot for merely not being liked enough by the leader of the day, he was sacked because of his mini-budget. The economy was in freefall and he was being blamed. There's no such thing as being a minister forever in the UK. So everybody who's been in government has to adjust to a period uh, when they're out of government. This is Kwasi Kwarteng, speaking to me for an episode last season. I felt let down, frankly. Um, and it was obvious to me that once she'd sacked me, she, was, she wasn't she was going to last very long. The she here is obviously Liz Truss. But funnily enough, I don't think she saw that. I think she probably thought she could... I mean, she must have thought she could survive longer because, you know, the seven weeks premiership was the shortest we've had in 300 years. Any regrets? I think it's all very well thinking you've got the right answer, but you've also got to have a, a staged, methodical approach to getting to the answer. Um, and I think that was something that I feel I am very regretful of. I think I think you had to have a more measured approach. Do you sort of blame her entirely? No, I don't. I mean, I, I think I'm responsible um, for the pace, but I think ultimately she's the prime minister, so she's responsible. She's more responsible than I am. Um, and I think the pace was it was too much, too fast. So that's the second reason you might get sacked. You screw up big time. Or at least your boss blames you for a big screw up. 
But there's another classic way to get yourself thrown out of government. This is number three, refusing to adhere to collective responsibility. Now, the crisis in the Middle East has thrown up extremely strong feelings on all sides. Keir Starmer, of course, lost eight junior ministers because of the ceasefire vote this week. But it was actually the Tories who were the first to lose a frontbencher over the crisis. At the end of October, Paul Bristow, a parliamentary aide in the Science and Technology Department, wrote a letter to the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to urge him to call for a permanent ceasefire. Four days later, Bristow was sacked. When I saw the Chief Whip and the Deputy Chief Whip both wanted to speak to me on a conference call, I knew there would be a fair chance uh, I, I would be sacked. So what I thought was quite funny is I wrote to the Prime Minister on the Thursday, and it was only on the Monday I actually got um, fired. I think that was because uh, the Daily Telegraph picked up the fact that I'd done this and probably showed the Prime Minister's probably not reading my letters. Do I regret it? Of course I do. I mean, I regret the idea that I had to do this, but... Look, for me, it, it was the right thing to do because just sort of overwhelmingly what my constituents are telling me. And, and you say regret. Do you regret doing it? Oh, I don't regret doing it at all, but I regret the fact that I lost my job. It's a job I really, really enjoyed. But look, I totally understand why the Prime Minister felt he had to do it. A fourth and final reason you could be sacked as a minister is being at the centre of a scandal. During Gavin Barwell's time as Chief of Staff in Downing Street... He and then Prime Minister Theresa May had to sack four different cabinet ministers. Michael Fallon, Priti Patel, Gavin Williamson and Damien Green for four different, completely unrelated scandals. It felt like bad luck at the time. I'm not sure if I ever... I mean, because none of them were connected, right? They're not, they're, not, they're not all part of one incident or anything, so they were all um, completely separate from each other. Perhaps the most dramatic of the four was the sacking of Gavin Williamson. In 2019, he was found to have leaked information from the National Security Council about Huawei's involvement in the 5G network. He denied the leak, but did admit talking to the press. The Prime Minister had the results of the leak inquiry and could see the very strong evidence that pointed to Gavin having been responsible for the leak. It was, it was a pretty quick decision, I think. And, and do you remember any of the conversations you had with Gavin during that time? Well, it's in the past now, and I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to repeat the whole thing, but he, he was... Yeah, he was insistent that he hadn't done it um, and was very angry and, and felt that the system had kind of framed him and set him up. I mean, you can probably imagine the kind of conversation that we had. And were you and Theresa May worried about sacking someone, even if they were embroiled in a scandal, um, because then they would go onto the backbenches and might be aggressive from the backbenches? Well, I, I think it was clear in Gavin's case that when he went to the backbenches, he wasn't going to be helpful to the Prime Minister after being sacked. Um, he made that pretty clear to me uh, in a conversation that he had. Um, but it didn't really factor into our judgment at all. The, Theresa was not the kind of person who would respond to that kind of threat. If she, if she felt someone had clearly done wrong and wasn't suitable to hold office anymore, she was going to remove them. And whatever the consequences that might be politically, you know, the consequences as it were. David Cameron believed that when he sacked people from his government, they sat behind him in the chamber and plotted his downfall. Tony Blair described sacking anyone as a ghastly business. But he thought there was no way to sack someone that would buy their loyalty. The only thing he said that determines whether or not they'll behave on the backbenches is their character. The good behave, the bad do not. 
And when George Osborne was sacked by Theresa May, he famously took his revenge by devoting newspaper column after newspaper column to attacking her. George Osborne has been criticised after reportedly claiming he will not rest until Theresa May is chopped up in bags in my freezer. Charming. Nikki Morgan, too, was very critical of May after she was sacked. She once attacked May's expensive trouser choice in the papers, leading to a massive row that Westminster decided to dub Trousergate. You can't just be difficult for difficult sake. It's why are you being being difficult? What are you trying to say? I think the suspicion is that Suella will be preparing her leadership bid, um, you know, um, for when the Prime Minister is no longer in, in position. In previous parliaments, people resigned and went to the back benches in order to fight for a particular issue rather than just saying, I don't like the general direction of this this, this government. Um, I would like to think that I was being uh, difficult because I disagree with the government's approach to Brexit, uh, which I thought was um, not where we needed to, to, to be. Um, and I wasn't alone in, in that. Nikki Morgan has a warning too, that life on the backbenches for a sacked minister can be harder than it looks. Your stock can fall very, very quickly as a backbencher, um, you know, you're not a minister, you haven't got special advisors around you, you haven't got all of that machinery of government, everything else. So if you are put on the back benches, you've got to then think, well, what am I going to do there um, to, uh, to to carry on, you know, sort of uh, being, a, being a voice and being listened to? At its heart, a political sacking is a test of strength. How strong is the prime minister at that moment? And how powerful an opponent is he creating on the back benches if he does the deed? Here's my Politico colleague, Rosa Prince, again. Tony Blair was probably one of the strongest prime ministers that we've ever had, and he couldn't sack Gordon Brown because he wasn't strong enough. Um, Look what happened to Margaret Thatcher when she sat the wrong people towards the end of her premiership. So um, how to get sacked is to do that little equation in your head and see if you can be a bit stronger than the, uh, or a bit weaker than the, the prime minister. Suella Braverman found herself on the wrong side of that equation. I think for for about a year after he appointed her, he thought that he would look weaker if he got rid of her and that she would cause too many problems for him on the outside. But I think what happened was she had become such a distraction. She was so insubordinate that he felt that it looked really bad for him if he allowed her to continue and therefore he had to be brutal and he wielded the knife. On Tuesday evening, Braverman took her revenge. Mrs Braverman fired back today with three pages of vitriol. She said Rishi Sunak had no mandate to be Prime Minister and had only got the job with her backing. She accused Rishi Sunak of never having any intention of keeping key policy promises. Someone needs to be honest, she told Rishi Sunak. Your plan is not working. Her brutal resignation letter accused Rishi Sunak of betraying the nation over immigration and said his response to the pro-Palestinian marches had been weak and uncertain. And this is just the start. I'm 100% sure that Suella Braverman will spend the next six months, year, however long it is, going for it. I think she's going to be having conversations with people. I think she's going to be on that rubber chicken circuit, going around to constituency parties and trying to, to court those votes. She 
in her mind, has now established herself as the leading candidate of the right. And she's going to expect to be there or thereabouts uh, in the race to be leader of the opposition. It's definitely not going to be comfortable having her on the outside. But I just think it was it, it was more uncomfortable having her on the inside, that she was such a loose cannon. She was saying all sorts of things that he didn't quite agree with. But more importantly, she was openly defying him. And I think enough was enough for him. So, how do you get sacked from the government? Well, the short answer is, stick around long enough and you'll likely find out. But the more difficult question to answer is how should leaders do it, when should leaders do it, and what is the impact when they get it wrong? That's what both Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak were weighing up this week. Whether they would look weaker holding on to rebellious frontbenchers than they would by letting them go. For both leaders, the answer was ultimately the same. And we won't have to wait too long to see if they were right. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. My X handle is at Agnes Chambray. And don't forget you can go back and listen to old episodes. After the surprise return of David Cameron, what better time than now to listen back to Jack's episode about great political comebacks. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. <laughs>